a real pleasure to welcome our first guest of the day to the program. She is a professor of, of optometry and vision science at the University of Waterloo. She is also a clinical scientist at the Center for Ocular Research and Education at the University of Waterloo. She is Professor Debbie Jones, who is the author of a piece entitled Hidden in Plain Sight, How the COVID-19 Pandemic is Damaging Children's Vision. Professor Jones, Debbie, good morning and welcome to our program. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. May I just quote one sentence from your article by way of introducing this topic to my audience? And it's the first sentence of this really well-written piece, Debbie. Here we go. Eye doctors had planned to celebrate 2020 as the year of vision, as in seeing 2020. Instead, it will be known as the year that worsened the world's vision for decades to come. Scientists are attributing this latest health issue one that is hidden in plain sight to the pandemic. And, of course, we're talking about the unintended consequences of something like a global pandemic, aren't we, Debbie? And in this case, exactly. it's the damage to children's vision. Tell us more, please. So what we're specifically talking about is myopia, and myopia is nearsightedness. So if you have myopia and you're not corrected, you see things clearly up close, but you don't see things clearly in the distance. Okay. And we know that myopia has been increasing worldwide over the last few decades. And we attribute that to a lot more near work, screen work, and less outside time. And of course, during the COVID pandemic, when there's been stay-at-home orders, um, children have been staying at home. They've been schooling at home um, mm. you know, with their virtual platforms. And they haven't been going out as much. And this particular um, kind of statement comes from a paper that was published out of uh, China, and they looked at 123,000 children, so a massive number of children, and they looked at how prescriptions in children were different in the first, you know, after the first six months of 2020 compared to the previous years. So they do this study every year. Okay. And what they noticed alarmingly was in the younger children, the age six to eight, there was a massive increase in the number of children that needed a prescription for myopia um, following the six months of, of lockdown, basically. And this particular area, children were in apartments. They were not going outside to play. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't have backyards. Um, and so that's really what's alerted us and really heightened the awareness to this uh, issue that we're facing. Indeed. So, Debbie, can you take a couple of moments? It's early in the day and not everyone is up to speed on the terminology or jargon of uh, mm -hmm. optometry. So it's myopia or nearsightedness. Now, we're all aware of what nearsightedness Correct. It means, but now you're talking about nearsightedness in little kids and as, as a direct consequence of overexposure to screens and not enough counterbalance of just looking at other things further away. So is myopia or nearsightedness a sort of a self-induced disease? Can you catch it, in other words, from just simply not doing enough uh, ocular balance in your life? Um, in simple terms, yes, we do know that children that spend more time outside are less likely to develop myopia. That's, that's been very well proven. So there okay. are various risk factors for myopia. The biggest risk factor is parental myopia. So, you know, if a child has two parents that already are myopic, then the odds are stacked sure, um, okay. that that child will develop myopia. The big concern we have is that the earlier you develop myopia, 
the higher your ultimate prescription will be because it naturally changes throughout the years up to kind of somewhere between 16 and 20 is when it, it plateaus. So just like kids grow, you know, they get taller and taller and bigger and bigger. And then, you know, mid-teens, they kind of plateau out. Um, myopia does the same thing, if you like, mm. and it's because the eyeball grows. But it's not related to physical growth. It's related to stimulation of looking at things close to is, is what we think. But irrespective of that, it continues to change. And so if you start at age six with a prescription, then by the time you're 18, your prescription is going to be way higher than it would have been had you started at 11. Um, and we have really good data from all across the world. And if you have a high prescription, you're much more at risk of complications later in life associated with that. And one of the serious ones is, is retinal degeneration, so damage to the retina, which is the sensory part at the back of the eye, and that's irreversible. So what we're predicting is that, you know, by the time these children get to being age 60, 70 or older, they will actually be visually impaired. So mm. their vision will be um, at a level that, you know, they may not be able to drive anymore, may not be able to work. So it's, it's the long-term effect that we're more concerned about because um, parents may say, well, you know, my kid wears glasses, he looks cute in them, that's fine. Sure. Well, it is, it is fine, but, you know, we need to do two things. We need to try and stop it happening and we need to slow it down when it is happening. So we have two kind of prongs of attack. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, the, the prescription that you, you've uh, referred to a few times here, uh, as a, mm -hmm. a, a talking about children as young as six, for example, needing a prescription. When we're talking about nearsightedness, the prescription, I, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, I'm, is painfully obvious. It's a pair of glasses. Or is there some right. are there other alternative um, approaches therapeutically to, to when you're dealing with nearsightedness in a really little kid? Um, there's nothing other than glasses or contact lenses to correct the vision, per okay. se, to make the All child right. see clearer. What we have, we have methods to slow down progression. So we have lots of different options. Once we um, find that a child is, is nearsighted, once we realize that they require a prescription, we have the chance to kind of put the brakes on the progression, at least to try right. and slow it down. So I often say to parents, you know, the horse is out of the stable, but let's not let it gallop away. Yeah. Let's and and as long as we're talking, sorry, Debbie, one, one thing no, that just jumped right off the page of, of this article, this wonderful little piece you wrote at the conversation, never assume your child can see well. Uh, how, and, and it's a really important thing to do. And, and you know, if, if your child is, uh, is experiencing visual difficulties, they'll generally let you know, I, I, I can't see or, or I can't. You know, but if the child's vision is, and, and I'm putting uh, quotes, air quotes here, normal so mm -hmm. uh, and there's no complaining or any of that kind of stuff uh, then y we assume perhaps too much professor jones that because my child isn't complaining that she can't see terribly well then she must be fine how frequently as the as the, the person who teaches eye doctors yeah. <laughs> how, how frequently would you recommend to moms and dads that they have a vision check of those little kids there is 
absolutely no substitution for routine eye care. You're, you're totally hitting the nail on the head. We do not know that our children are seeing well. Pleasure to have a conversation with Professor Debbie Jones this morning, joining us from the University of Waterloo, where she is a clinical professor in the School of Optometry and Vision uh, science. And we wrote an article recently uh, at theconversation.com entitled High Hidden, rather Hidden in Plain Sight, How the COVID-19 Pandemic is Damaging Children's Vision. And we're talking, as it turns out, Professor Jones, about uh, myopia or nearsightedness, which can be diagnosed in kids uh, as early as six months. We were talking just before the news break about uh, a very, very critical point that you make in this article, and that is to all parents everywhere, Never assume your child can see well. Now, if your child complains and and I can't see, I'm having difficulties, obviously there's a vision issue, Debbie, but it's not necessarily the case with most, so we say, average kids who kind of get by without glasses and make their way through life and don't complain much. Uh, And you say that uh, you recommend to moms and dads that that first eye test occur in the first year of life as early as six months. And how frequently after that? Once a year or, or once every couple of years? What's the routine that you'd like moms and dads to establish for eye care? So I recommend first exam around six months of age. And obviously at that point, we're really just looking to make sure everything looks like it's on track. I mean, we're mm-hmm. not asking a six-month-old to, uh, you know, read a letter chart. Um, <laughs> right. And that's one of the, the misconceptions. Parents think they have to wait for their child to be able to read a letter chart. And that is absolutely not the case. Many of the tests we do on young children are objective, so they don't actually require any any cooperation or participation from the child. But we can get a very good look. You can understand, though, why why, why some parents will go, well, my child doesn't know the letter W. So how could could she be expected to read that on that paper on the wall? And and so parents would hold off until at least my child knows how to say W. Yeah. And by the time, you know, a child is confident reading their letters, some of the vision problems that we could detect are very hard to manage. So six months of age, and then I recommend annually thereafter. If you look at the kind of official guidelines, most of the guidelines recommend around about six months and then probably around three and then yearly. But I say to parents, get yourself in the mindset that, you know, May is your eye care month for your child. You've had an exam now in May, let's see you next year in May. And then, you know, get get them in that mindset. They're, they're totally clued into dental care. Sure, you know, parents yeah. are very good at taking their kiddies to the dentist. So just add optometry, you know, add your family optometrist into your, uh, into your address book and uh, make a note in your diary that every year it's your responsibility to make sure that your child is seeing well and that their eyes are developing normally. And let me just follow up on that. Can your family physician, if you're fortunate enough to have a family doc, can he or she conduct those early in life eye tests or do you need to go to an optometrist? I would highly recommend going to, to an optometrist. We, we obviously have a lot of training in eyes. Uh, your general physician, your family doc has phenomenal training in a very broad spectrum of healthcare. But in terms of the visual system, I mean, we spend a long time 
um, studying that. You know, we see patients all the time. We're much in a much better place to be able to look at a child's vision, look at the way their eyes are working together. And we have the equipment and the technology as well. So, uh, sure. and, and you want to build that rapport. You want your child to know that, you know, if it was patients of mine, Dr. Jones is my optometrist and they get used to seeing you, they get comfortable with you and they build up that relationship. So uh, whilst your family doctor can certainly help you out with some aspects of of eye and vision care, um, your optometrist really is the best person to go to. You know, this uh, pandemic, uh, Professor Jones, has caused a lot of unnecessary grief for a lot of families the world over because a lot of people have simply just put on complete pause the notion of approaching a medical professional. God forbid I should go to the emergency <laughs> ward of any hospital because I'm likely to catch COVID just by showing up. And people yep, feel yep. the same way about doctor's offices and so on. And you do make the point in your article that physicians, uh, physicians' offices are among the safest places in terms of cleanliness and hygiene. Obviously, mm-hmm. they're following COVID protocols to the nth degree. Uh, and it's, 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 but a lot of people, Canadians of all ages, Debbie, have postponed and put off important medical appointments and procedures to their own detriment. And your point here is uh, that it, when it comes to your children's vision, uh, this is something that really ought not to be put off. And a doctor's office is indeed a pretty safe place. Can we get back yeah. to nearsightedness for a moment, please? Because you talked sure. about uh, the causes that little kids uh, be- become myopic or develop nearsightedness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, of course, is screen time. And in this pandemic year, the one that was supposed to be celebrating Vision 2020, aha, very yep. catchy uh, last year. I mean, pandemic uh, just threw a, a spanner into the works for everyone. But talk about screen time. Holy cow. But you say it's not just focusing on a screen, Debbie. You say it's the degree or proximity to their eyes that children tend to hold screens. They like them nice and close, don't they? Exactly. And that it's not the screen per se. The screen isn't emitting something that's causing damage. It's not because it's a digital device. It's because we're using them for extended periods of time. And in children, it's often a very short working distance. So they lie on the floor with a tablet on the floor in front of them. You know, they're propped up on their elbows. Sure. They lie in bed holding it close. We've all seen kiddies, you know, with a a tablet basically on the end of their nose Mm -hmm. uh, playing a video game. So it's the short working distance for long periods of time. That's what we think is having the biggest impact because that's sending messages to the visual system that that's where it needs to be in focus. So then it's adapting to being at that near focus, to be nearsighted. So our recommendations, and it's hard, you know, if you're homeschooling, you have to be on a tablet or, you know, your kiddies want to do some social media stuff. You know, it depends what they're using them for. But our recommendation is lots of breaks. So Mm -hmm. we have this kind of catchy 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, look 20 feet away for 20 seconds. Lots of time outside. That has a two-pronged kind of attack because we know outside time delays the onset of myopia. But if a child is outside running around, they're not looking at a screen. They're right. not holding something close. You know, they're kicking a, a soccer ball around or, or whatever. So um, that has a, you know, a, a double whammy, if you like, to get your child outside to play. Um, 
But just try and watch those those working distances, you know, try and have your child seated at a counter or a desk or a table and push the laptop away a little bit, push that tablet away. Um, don't let them hold on to it and uh, and try and cut out the the non-academic time, which is really hard. You know, if I had little kiddies at home, I'm sure I'd be giving them a, a tablet and saying, you know, watch a movie or play a game or something. I'm on a meeting um, but, uh, you know, try and limit that social time, the non-academic time, if you can. And, and just, you know, try and do other things with them. Get them back to some old-fashioned, you know, coloring, playing games, Lego, those types of things. Don't just reach mm. for the electronic option as being the first thing. The kiddies won't thank you for it, but they'll right, get used right. to it if you, if you limit their time. Um, but, yeah, I can't overemphasize outside time is so valuable and routine eye care. And, and you're absolutely right. People are delaying it. We're in a stay-at-home order here in Waterloo at the moment. So yes. parents shouldn't be taking their children for routine eye care. But don't put it off for long. You know, don't say, oh, I missed this year. I'll wait till next year. If you missed this month, then pick it up next month. Don't delay. All right. So the uh, the importance again. Again, uh, I, I read this article several times. Of course, do, had to do my homework before I spoke to the professor. <laughs> good for you. But the, the, Debbie, the most salient point, and you make a lot of really good points. Especially, I mean, you, you talk about. I mean, look at adult drivers. You're, if you're a long distance driver, uh, uh, you, you 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 have to train yourself to do things like check your rear view mirror, check your side mm-hmm. mirrors every few seconds, change your field of vision constantly so that you're constantly refreshing yourself now adults do this routinely so you're suggesting we do that we, we create those interruptions visually for our children so that they they keep changing their field of vision and that's a really healthy thing for them and the other message of course is never assume your child can see well Absolutely. Yeah, you really did do your homework. Well done. I'm impressed. Well, thank you. Thank you. I was, I was going for star. a gold star on the, on a Saturday <laughs> morning here, you know. <laughs> it's a very, a very good piece. <laughs> it's it's a great piece, Debbie. You and your and your colleague uh, Kate Gifford down there at the University of Queensland in Australia have done the world a service with this. Moms and dads need to be reminded about uh, children's vision. We care deeply about it, of course, but it's not an aspect of our children's lives we're able to monitor well because, of course, how can you see what they see? So the doctor uh, needs to be consulted at least once a year. Professor Debbie Jones, a real pleasure to have you on the program this morning. Thank you for your article, and thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. You have a great day. You too. There's Debbie Jones, professor of optometry at the University of Waterloo. Her piece, Hidden in Plain Sight, How the COVID-19 Pandemic is Damaging Children's Vision, is an important read. It'll take you about four minutes at theconversation.com. It's a pleasure to welcome Robert Falzon back to the program on this beautiful morning. Mr. Falzon is the head of engineering uh, with Czech Point Canada, joining us from Toronto. He describes himself on the website, along with several of his colleagues, as a security evangelist. Robert Falzen, good morning and welcome back to our show. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's good to have you with us, Robert. First of all, I got to ask you, because you and a few of your colleagues do it on the website, what, what, do, what exactly or how do you define a security evangelist? <laughs> good question. So, For me, uh, security evangelist means helping to educate people, right? So cybersecurity is certainly perceived as to be a very complicated, kind of frightening uh, type of scenario, right? Most people don't really understand what we do. 
And mm-hmm. as a result of that, it's really up to people like me who've spent my entire career studying cybersecurity and keeping people safe to share that knowledge and try to make it easier for people to understand how to protect themselves. It's not as complicated as it seems. So basically, I try to translate all that uh, you know, jargon and mumbo-jumbo so that people can understand it in a more simple way. And it's a really important assignment you've given yourself because I think a lot of people surrender unnecessarily to the internet and to cyber reality, Robert, because it seems more complicated than it actually needs to be. And that, of course, works to the advantage of the bad guys. And that's what you are here to talk to us or remind us of this morning. Uh, It's tax season time. And let me just quote here from the uh, Canadian Business Association website. Tax season scams, Robert, involve fraudsters who try to dupe you into believing they're representatives of the Canada Revenue Agency. These fraudulent communications attempt to trick you into sending either payment for, quote, debts or sensitive personal information about you they can use to commit fraud against you. It is tax season time, the deadline officially midnight last night, uh, and yet the scammers are just, it, it's their it's their turn again this year. Uh, and as the Business Association described it, would you agree that that's what the bulk of the scams look and sound like? Absolutely, 100%. It is, uh, I think, as you mentioned a little bit earlier there, uh, attackers are really taking advantage of the fact that we sort of have this pandemic fatigue, right? We're, we're, we're kind of moving into a cyber pandemic now because as people are getting tired of all the, the constant, constantly being inundated with information about their, you know, being ha- hacks that you see online. There's a lot of high profile ones. So as you mentioned, it kind of surrendered to it. And when it yeah. comes to tax season, that's another area where people get very concerned. It's their well-being, right? It's how much money they're going to have to pay or receive back. Uh, and many people are relying, especially this year, with all the changes in, in taxes relating to, you know, um, COVID-related payments and mm-hmm, yeah. and things like that, it creates more complication. So with more complication, creates more opportunity for hackers to exploit maybe our lack of knowledge on those topics. And therefore, you're going to see a significant increase in emails and phone calls uh, from scammers who are looking to either, as you mentioned, get payment from you directly right now or even perhaps just gather and harvest your personal information for use against you later on. What is the more more likely point of contact, a phone call or an email, or is it about equal? Uh, I would say probably emails are the most prevalent right now. In fact, okay. they're, they're significant and the most common. Everybody has email, and you're you know when somebody gets on a phone with you and you're speaking to somebody, uh, you know, they're not face to face, but you can hear their voice you tend to be a little bit more, you know, more cautious. Emails, you know, especially if they're well-constructed, we get them all the time. And yeah. if something looks important, like, oh, a bill is due, you better do something about that. It creates mm-hmm. that sense of urgency, uh, and people are more uh, likely to react to those emails, or at least have been from the stats anyways. So in terms of picking off a fraud, a deceptive email pretty quickly, I guess the obvious ones uh, points here, Robert, would be, well, if they ask for uh, money that I'm supposedly owing to the government in the form of gift cards or some kind of cyber currency, chances are I should hit delete immediately. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Like keep an eye, keep an eye on your bank accounts too. make sure not that they're asking for money. But make sure that you haven't received a refund or anything that you didn't request, right? These types of things are also uh, examples of more advanced uh, fraud that takes place, and it's becoming more common. These attacks are quite sophisticated, right? So if, you know, certainly if somebody calls you claiming to be from a collection agency, 
be skeptical for sure. sure. Don't divulge, divulge any personal information, especially financial to them over the phone or in an mm-hmm. email. Okay. Uh, and that's the important part about it. What they're after is either your money or in, in lieu of that, they're after your personal data, your bank account number, your social insurance number, uh, information they can use against you really quickly too. Yes, for sure. Well, they'll, they'll often send you a link, for example, in that email. Even in a phone call sometimes, they'll say, hey, go to this link, and we're going to get you just confirm your identity so that we can send you this money. And once you click on that link, it takes you to a place where they, they collect your personal information. It might have a password in there. It might even look like your bank account uh, mm-hmm, login yeah. page. It's not, <laughs> but it might look like it. And then they use that information again to log into other services you might use. Many people don't have great uh, cybersecurity um, etiquette, so they'll, they'll use the same password and email from multiple different sites. Sure. Uh, and as a result of that, they don't change them often enough. And again, hackers are well aware of that, and they take advantage, advantage of human nature. Okay. So uh, again, just by way of summarizing this, and it is the, it's only the first day after the official tax deadline. Uh, so, and this is going to go on for a while too, isn't it? Now that we filed, mm-hmm. now that the, uh, the dust is officially settling and many of us are uh, waiting for a rebate or some kind of uh, a letter of acknowledgement or something that we've received you. So we're, we're, we're aware of feedback from Revenue Canada at this time. So any communication that comes to us is, is not surprising. That's the advantage the bad guys have we're kind of expecting something aren't we exactly exactly yeah and everybody needs to be aware that if you know you have any sort of communications or you're expecting something you can just give it go ahead and call the cra like they have a 1-800 number call them back say i'm going to call you back because i'm not certain about this information or you want to just be you know very cautious call them back Uh, they'll take your phone call and they'll confirm or reject that information that you received and that way you remain safe you can even go to the website as well, and there's all sorts of great information on the Canada.ca, uh, especially the Revenue Agency website, that will give you tips on making sure that you're safe and how to reach them and how they'll reach you. Robert, it's a great way to start the month of May with a visit, an actual visit on the airwaves from a security evangelist. I thank you for your time, sir. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dylan. <laughs> oh, it's good to have you back, Robert. It's terribly important information. And it's that time of year when, as you say, pandemic fatigue is not our friend right now. Our guard is down and we need to get it back up there. So thanks for this very timely reminder. Good to talk to you again, sir. Thank you so much. Stay vigilant. Now, you bet. There's Robert Falzon. He was the head of engineering, along with being a security evangelist for the good folks at Checkpoint Canada. They, too, have an excellent security conscious website. Check them out. I saw this headline a couple of days ago. I thought, you know, we just really need to do this on the radio. The headline is Vancouver-based meal prep service launches industry-first zero-waste kit. So it's a local story. Let's dig in. And we found Drew Sood, who is the Fresh Prep co-founder and co-CEO, to tell us more about this Vancouver story. Mr. Sood, Drew, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? It's good to to have you with us this morning, Drew. Tell us a little bit about Fresh Prep. How long has the company been around? And uh, tell us about the zero-waste concept, too, please. Thanks. Thanks. It's good to be here. Um, We started in... 2015 and we started pretty small in uh, Point Grey here and slowly kind of grew over the last six years and now we service um, 20 municipalities in BC and you know over 10,000 customers every week and so 
we've really found a base in BC here. And over the last three years, we've been developing the zero waste kit. Okay. So tell us a little bit about uh, the zero waste kit. No, so, but the fresh prep approach, uh, what service do you provide to your clients, Drew? Yeah, we're a meal kit company. We prep and portion all the ingredients for your dinner and we deliver to you a kit that you can use to cook yourself a dinner in 30 minutes or less. Okay. Um, a uh, strong point for us is that we manage all of our own deliveries, which allows us to use a lot of reusable packaging. And so we started with cooler bags over the last uh, five years. And so at the end of your meal kit experience, you don't have a cardboard box. And I was just going to say, yeah. Stuff to take right. out. Um, we just pick up the bag next week, including the ice pack, and we reuse both of them. But for us, that wasn't enough. So... Three years ago, we decided we wanted to take it a step further. And, you know, from a food company, we started to become uh, more engineering focused. And we hired a team in-house to build ourselves the Zero Waste Kit, which is a reusable container that significantly reduces the waste from single-use plastic on, on the inside of the meal kit. Okay, so it allows so- for a lot easier cooking experience. Right. And, and uh, so as I understand it, uh, unlike a lot of those other meal services that deliver you, and you see the ads on TV all the time, Drew, they, they put yeah. a cardboard box on your doorstep and then you off you go to the races. The big difference here is, A, no cardboard box, no need for recycling that material. It doesn't exist. And the, uh, and the delivery uh, service uh, provides its own uh, bags, which are returned and recycled. And then you talk about this tray that you've built, this customized d- designed and built tray that I assume as well is recyclable or returnable. And the tray is specifically designed to meet the needs of each individual meal. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Uh, the tray is uh, 100% reusable, so it gets returned. Uh, we sanitize it again, and then we reuse it. And the tray itself has uh, configurable cups that allows us to do a lot of different recipes and we have over a thousand in our repertoire now so it was uh, ah. quite the challenge to build something that actually works for everything ah so you first of all you had to design uh, a kit or, or a, 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 a container that would uh, accept portions measurable portions that would mm-hmm. be reusable returnable uh, cleanable so, so for hygienic and uh, sanitization purposes it really had to be a multi-purpose uh, thing that you came up with when you finally achieved the right design drove uh, who makes this stuff I assume you're a local company so do you make these trays yourself or have you contracted them to another local company uh, we aren't able to make these trays ourselves. I think uh, manufacturing a trade is a whole different, much, much bigger business. Sure. Um, and it's actually not a, not a big business locally here, um, given sort of what Vancouver's focus is. Mm-hmm. And so we get it manufactured elsewhere, uh, but all the design, engineering, um, research and development happens here. Yeah, exactly. So um, as far as the appeal of this product, Drew, I suppose in addition to, and again, it's just, it's not a cardboard box. So that's where your competition, most of your competitors deliver their products to their customers and clients in a cardboard box. You don't, Mm. and that sets you apart immediately. What are the other distinguishing features of Fresh Prep? Um, One of the big things we do differently is that we actually 
prep the ingredients. So it's, it's in the name. It's, it's always what we wanted to do. So we'll take it further and, and send you uh, pre-chopped onions and pre-minced garlic and pre-cut carrots uh, for your meals. So you spend less time chopping and more time cooking, which allows us then to give you a more uh, flavorful recipe because ah. there's more time for cooking. We can bring in more complex flavors without going over that 30-minute mark that we're trying to hit for this. Interesting. Community. So you, you, you subtract okay. the, the, the prep work, and that's it's good that you've chosen to put it in the company name. You do a lot of the prep. So the 30 minutes that your client is supposed to spend creating that meal from that kit does not include chopping and, and all that time. That's already done. So the 30 minutes can be spent on mostly cooking and therefore extracting even more flavors. Great approach. How successful are you? And what's the grand plan? Do you want to get out of BC and do it nationally? Or would you like to just make sure you got BC covered from corner to corner? Um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. We do have a couple ingredients that we prep. Um, but overall, we're looking to expand out of BC, uh, head into Alberta shortly here. Um, wow. But really, our, our stronghold will be in BC. And we're looking to continue to add more municipalities in BC, like Whistler and some of the islands here. Good stuff. Well, Drew, thanks for being with us this morning. It's a very good idea. We wish you considerable success. And we'll talk again. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. There's Drew Sood. He is the co-founder and co-CEO of Fresh Prep. It has not been a great week for the B.C. Liberals. They have been the subject of much inquiry at the Money Laundering Commission of Inquiry, and we're seeing former heads of government and ministries basically being uh, exposed for, well, shall we say, cavalierly looking the other way when their job description required them to do a little bit more. Throw in on top of the money uh, inquiry, the money laundering inquiry, this headline, which surfaced just a couple of days ago. Investigation. BC-owned addiction rehab allegedly used for liberal politicking and contract awards. The, the investigative reporter behind the headline is Glacier Media's Jeremy Hainsworth, who joins us this morning with some more of the backstory. Jeremy, good to have you with us again. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. So talk to us a little bit about this rehab rehabilitation facility. First of all, where was it and when did all of these allegations occur? Well, the, uh, the center itself is 35 kilometers southwest of Prince George, and it, it's still in operation. It's uh, run by an organization called the BC New Hope Recovery Society, but it was bought by the provincial government in 2010. It began operating in 2007. Okay, and uh, so uh, it's, in, it's in the Prince George area, just south of town, right? That's right. Okay, so now when did the when did the things start to thicken up here from the point of view of uh, the uh, a rehab facility intersecting with uh, political activity? Well, the uh, the uh, facility itself was the uh, the division of uh, um, uh, Vancouver area. Uh, MLA Lorne Mayencourt, uh, mm -hmm. who thought about uh, this idea based on something he saw in Italy, uh, 
back in about 2006, 2007. They searched all over the province for a place to put such a facility, and they uh, set their sights on this property near Prince George. So, you know, the Liberals have been involved in this for quite some time. Mr. Mayancourt was flying backwards and forwards while he was an MLA to Prince George, and he was taking legislative assistance with him. Okay, and to this uh, rehab facility, which was funded by the, I assume, the, the Ministry of Health, correct? Well, they were receiving a, a lot of grants from various uh, uh, ministries and agencies and organizations. Um, the uh, There's also, you know, private funding for the clients who go there, and also uh, funding from various ministries who would uh, would chip in to help people get clean if they couldn't afford it themselves. Right, of course. So, uh, and now, how long had the uh, the center near Prince George, this uh, addiction rehab center, been open before they start, or before you uh, uncovered, uh, shall we say, irregularities? Well, I began hearing about this place about uh, eight years ago, and I began hearing some odd stories involving election campaigning and uh, various other things. But it wasn't until two years ago when I was uh, looking through, uh, you know. Uh, posted contracts, government contracts, that I spotted uh, a contract up for bids for the removal of asbestos tiles. And I just thought, why would they be removing asbestos tiles from a facility that is being used uh, primarily for health purposes? Right, sure. So I began to dig a bit deeper, and I discovered that this used to be uh, Canadian Forces Base Baldy Hughes, before which it was a U.S. military base, uh, as uh, part of a secondary line for warning systems for uh, Soviet missile and bomber attacks. Oh, boy. So I got a Department of Defense closure report, which showed a lot of hazardous materials on this site. And the responsibility was to clean it up was supposedly that of uh, Environment Canada. And, uh, you know, some work was done, but it doesn't seem to be a hell of a lot. Uh, fast forward to uh, 2010 when uh, some uh, studies were done uh, for the purchase by uh, the Provincial Rental Housing Corporation, which is the real estate arm of BC Housing. Okay. And uh, they did some studies, and they uh, suggested it would cost $375,000 to clean up. Well, to date, BC Housing has only spent $180,000, yet they claim they're doing this work in order to keep the people there safe. Right. But, you so, know, it, it's a case of, uh, of half measures here. If you want to keep them safe, why have you only spent half the money that was recommended 11 years ago? Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, there is, there's no such thing as a half measure when it comes to asbestos. You either have it or you don't, and there's no, there's no living with a compromised situation. We've had WorkSafe BC on our show enough times, Jeremy, over the years to have learned enough about asbestos that that's simply untenable. It, it can't be. Well, WorkSafe BC released uh, two uh, uh, compliance orders to me the other day, uh, one of which, you know, very clearly deals with asbestos and uh, the fact that they weren't following any form of asbestos plan. They weren't consulting their asbestos inventories before they were doing work. Well, and here's the other complication, and this is the part of the story that isn't we haven't touched on yet. We don't have all the time in the world, so let's cut to the chase. Because the residents, those individuals in this rehab center, were, were, were used or recruited. Let's just use that word to be a kind, as kind as we can. Were recruited or drafted into performing tasks 
of a political nature. Give us well, the backstory. What I was told by uh, by a number of people was that uh, you know clients at the center, therefore addiction recovery, were being given Liberal Party membership lists to solicit support, uh, allegedly for Kevin Falcon in his run for the BC Liberal leadership. And that was the leadership eventually run won by Christy Clark. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the man at the center at all, uh, Marshall Smith, has vehemently denied all of this, uh, as has Kevin Falcon now. Um, you know, it's, uh, one wonders just what has gone on there. So then what, what's the upshot here? Here we are on, on the 1st of May, all of these allegations on the table, uh, a, a quite, a, quite a long list of allegations of uh, irregular behavior on the part of people who are supposedly in recovery from drug addiction being drafted into being political agents of some description. Uh, plus, we have asbestos, unresolved asbestos issues. So uh, where is this going to go, Jeremy? Where, where do you see this story going next? Well, I'm, I'm waiting for the uh, various government ministries and agencies to get back to me and, and tell me, you know, what form of discrete regulations need to be put in place to govern the running of, uh, of recovery centers, of treatment mm-hmm. centers. You know, uh, where, where are the codes of conduct? Where are the codes of ethics? What is and is not permissible? You know, should people be doing partisan work? Uh, if people are in recovery, should they be subject to, uh, you know, uh, ideologies other than, uh, you know, a strict health care uh, recovery one? Right, right. Uh, and, uh, uh, and again, I would assume uh, uh, this particular recovery facility, Jeremy, is fully or in part by the taxpayers of British Columbia. Oh, yeah. You know, there, there, there have been some, uh, some private donations. Uh, you know, they do do fundraising, uh, so there is money there for the, uh, the actual day-to-day operations, but they do receive significant amounts of money from the public purse. Hmm. Well, as this unfolds, and I thank you for taking the time this morning to at least lay it out on the table, as you did in the paper the other day in Business in Vancouver. Good article, by the way. As as you become uh, made aware of the responsibilities and degrees of activity from all of those government agencies and ministries that you've contacted, Jeremy, uh, can you come back and fill us in a little bit on what they say their side of the story is and ultimately answer the question, Where's this thing going to go? I'd be more than happy to update uh, your listeners. All right. Well, it's, it's quite a story. And uh, it's, uh, it, it, how long do you expect to be uh, this to, to go on in terms of satisfaction on the part of response from the government? I think this is going to go on for a while. It, uh, it hit the Calgary Herald yesterday. Oh, okay. Uh, because uh, Mr. Smith, who was the executive director uh, up there at the time, is now the chief of staff to the Associate Minister of Mental Health and Addictions in Alberta. Oh, interesting stuff. So it, it just, the plot gets thicker now, doesn't it, Jeremy? Indeed it does, Sterling. Well, thank you for this this morning, my friend. It's great to have you back on the show. I appreciate the excellent digging that you're involved with in this. And as I say, as this story rolls out, please come back and, uh, and fill us in. Will do. Glacier Media award-winning investigative reporter Jeremy Hainsworth joining us this morning here in British Columbia, most 
hard hit is the restaurant and hospitality sector. And the fact that there are restaurants still alive and still doing their very best to stay alive after over a year of all of this is a credit to their determination to say nothing of their organizational structure. Uh, And it's all about survival. Down in White Rock, the Business Improvement Association there has uh, released a strongly worded report to local council criticizing its handling of the existential crisis imposed on restaurateurs in the White Rock area. Here to talk about that is Alex Nixon, who is the executive director with the White Rock Business Improvement Association. Mr. Nixon, Alex, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's good to have you with us, and Alex, and I'm, I'm a longtime White Rock guy, lived there for, for over 30 years, know the area well, know the situation well, but along Marine Drive, which is White Rock's real jewel in terms of tourist attraction and visitor uh, sightseeing and so on, that's where most of the restaurants, or a lot of the restaurants are located, and similar to Kitsilano and many other restaurant uh, tourist-heavy areas, uh, it's a tough go, and so it's all about patios, Alex, and, and uh, or perhaps the lack thereof. Give us the specifics of the letter that you uh, fired off to White Rock Council the other day. Well, White Rock Council, uh, we have, we have uh, privately approached them uh, multiple times asking for uh, their help in increasing seating capacity along Marine Drive. Marine Drive properties uh, aren't that large, and so there's not a lot of private land for them to expand their patios onto. Right. Uh, so we approached White Rock Council several times privately. We came up with a few ideas that we felt would work, uh, but encouraged them to to find uh, different, more workable solutions if that's what they wanted. Uh, and then on Monday night's council meeting, uh, they requested a report uh, on how to market Green Drive to White Rock residents which isn't a problem at all right now. White Rock residents have been very supportive. Uh, So we we reported on what needs to get done, and that's what this report is about. We need uh, White Rock Council to help uh, expand patio space on Marine Drive. It is is an existential crisis. Most of the restaurants down there have three to ten patio tables. You just can't survive as a business on three to ten patio tables. Right. And, and Alex, just, just to be clear for the record, is, uh, and those places that have such a limited patio capacity, is there any yeah. indoor dining at the moment allowed at all? No indoor. Under the provincial health order, there's no indoor dining. And we, so. our businesses okay. have been very supportive of, of the public health orders uh, okay. and, very, and have followed them very carefully. So I've had some conversations. This goes back a year, and we're going to do it again next weekend with Vancouver Councillor uh, Sarah Kirby Young, who's a big patio proponent and who managed to persuade her colleagues on Vancouver City Council last summer, Alex, to expand patio privileges, in some cases, right out into the streets uh, where there had previously been traffic. And she's going for it again this summer. Is that the kind of resolution you were hoping to see in White Rock with portions of the main drag, which is Marine Drive, actually closed down? or at least limited to one direction? That is one of the, the two proposals we put forward to White Rock Council. Uh, we encourage them to consider a one-way marine drive, which would allow the restaurants to expand their patio space, uh, in some cases more than doubling it. Uh, but we also encourage them to consider allowing alcohol consumption in Memorial Park 
which would allow uh, restaurants to sell alcohol with a takeout, thus boosting their revenues, um, wow. and would come with no additional um, traffic management requirements. And uh, currently, of course, that's not allowable. What sort of appetite did you sense uh, when this was presented to City Council, or were you able to gauge any reaction at all? Uh, they voted down um, both proposals, uh, and uh, they're only they they had two uh, motions they passed: one to ask for a plan to shut down the waterfront completely, and two to ask us for a report on how to market Marine Drive to White Rock residents. Okay, so now, of course, and, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago. This I'm kind of uh, digressing for a moment here, Alex, but it's it's germane. A couple of weeks ago, we saw a very, very jam-packed White Rock Beach. Back a couple of weeks ago, we were having those 20-degree Sunday afternoons. The beach was mm. just packed. I mean, everybody goes to White Rock. It's such a safe place to go. That's the thinking, right? So when those days happen, what do you do? Well, you know, a few things. One, uh, people are actually, st- you know, following the rules pretty well. Mm-hmm. They're they're staying socially distanced. I know that the photos don't seem that way, but they are. And two, uh, we don't see how closing down White Rock Beach is going to improve things. You know, you talk about those days, and I went and checked out Crescent Beach in Mud Bay, which is also in our community, and sure, they were yeah. packed too. So I don't, yes. I don't see how moving the crowds from White Rock Beach to those two areas in our community is going to make our community safer. Right. And so uh, with respect to council response, and I mean, of course, we we all saw the pictures and and we all know what's going to happen again, as probably as soon as this afternoon too, Alex, given the weather this weekend. So again, the reality is different from the wish list. And I, I, I gather that there's a, a, some uh, hesitancy to separate the wish list uh, that city council wants to see from the, the gotta-have-it list that business and local entrepreneurs need to see. Well, you know, I, I can't speak to, uh, to health and safety matters. Uh, I leave that to, to Fraser Health and the public health officer. Sure, of course. Obviously, if they decide to shut down areas of our community, uh, I'm sure it will be respected and followed. Uh, mm-hmm. I also suspect that they would do more than just shut down Marine Drive if, if they thought that was the, an issue. However, uh, I do know what businesses need to survive through this, and they can't uh, survive on three to, three to ten tables. You just can't make the numbers work. No question about it. Alex, uh, I'm out of time. I thank you for yours. It's important that people know about this and it, know that it's not just going on in Kitsilano or, or, or a, a, a Park Royal. It's going on in every corner of British Columbia. And uh, we'll just do our best to support those local restaurants as we can. Alex Nixon, thanks for this this morning. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.